Hello, this is Brian from Valleytown Church, and today we are going to continue our series in Hall of Faith, kind of. I'm probably going to spend a few weeks in the Book of Romans, and we've been uh, studying through some of the Old Testament characters, individuals that have been commended as righteous because of their faith. And now that we've got some historical context, we know the names of these individuals, it actually has equipped us to be able to better understand some of the, the texts that Paul writes about salvation and faith and predestination and God's election and choice and all of these other factors that are significant to how we come to God and how he chose us, but do we get to also choose him. And so I'm going to be reading Romans chapter 9 today and then expose a little bit of the verses, uh, the first 14 or so verses is my plan. I'll probably be also checking in in Romans chapter 10 as well as 11 uh, because Paul is continuing his thoughts throughout those. And actually uh, all three of those chapters, 9, 10, and 11, are specifically about God's chosen God's loved people, the Jewish people. And in Romans chapter 9, it is significantly about their history and their past, which is why it's great that we've been studying the Hall of Faith. Uh, Romans 10 is about their present and that Paul is actually still praying for them uh, and that there's still hope and uh, need for them to respond to the gospel, to uh, the Messiah, their Messiah that, that God had sent in order to redeem his people. And then Romans 11 is about their, their future, that God isn't done with them as his people. And so uh, I'm going to jump in and let's see, here we go, here we go. I'm going to read this. I've got uh, these verses up on the screen, so it's a little bit of a different format than normal. And I'm just sitting here, it's late at night, the Wadi boys are all in bed, I've got some tea, we're just hanging out. And uh, this isn't necessarily all, uh, you know, praise God, super excited Bible passages. Uh, some of this stuff is heavy, as Paul himself is going to say in a moment, that he has a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart when he's thinking about these things. And so uh, that's appropriate, okay? That sometimes when we read the Bible, it doesn't leave us cheerful, but it teaches us truth, <laughs> right? And it calls us to God. And so that's what's important. So here we go. So this is Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And so... All right, well, Brian, slow down. You're going to start explaining things. Let's keep reading. Let's do one full read on nine. Here we go. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham 
because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, for, uh, for honorable use, and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who, her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued the law, uh, a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. 
Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, so that's Romans 9. I wanted to read it in one fell swoop. So that way uh, you at least see Paul's context through all of it in in one listening. Uh, and so that if I'm wrong in any of my study and interpretation, that uh, you at least got to hear it all in one go and not, you know, kind of cut up and looked at and analyzed and dissected. Uh, and, you know, if, like I said, if I'm wrong, then you at least got to hear the right expression is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the the public reading of scripture. And so Paul begins saying that uh, he is in great anguish and crying out for his brothers, the kinsmen according to the flesh, right? Paul loved the people that he's writing to, the people that he's writing about. Paul greatly desires for them to know Jesus beyond the love that I must admit that I have for other people, right? To be willing to be accursed, to be cut off from Christ so that others could be saved, right? Like that's, that's a lot of love <laughs> to be willing to, to say that. Obviously, Paul doesn't get to arrange salvation as he wills. His life cannot be offered as a ransom for many. It was Christ. And as a result, Christ is the only means through which we can be saved by grace through faith. And when we read this, uh, and he talks about the fact that only a remnant will be saved, this isn't for us to stand in any place of, of judgment uh, or of boasting or of pride, uh, but of, of humility. Uh, this, isn't, there, this text leaves absolutely no room for anti-Semitism, right? The, the, the Bible, the New Testament, the majority of it, all but two books are written by Jewish people, people who came to trust in the Messiah that God had sent to them and, right, through that Messiah to bless all the nations of the world, just as he had told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But as far as Paul talking about these individuals that had stumbled on the stumbling block, right, this, this stone, this who is Christ, uh, I want to point out that Paul loves them. And so when we get to the verse about uh, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, I want to point out that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, loves some of the very people that he is saying God maybe has even hardened. And I wouldn't think that Paul would love them more than God loves them. Right? And so it seems it would be consistent to believe that God also loves and desires these people to be saved, to believe so that they would not be put to shame. And just to, to further verify that, I want to quickly glance at, at Romans chapter 10. Let's see. Oh, it looks like I was already doing some searching here. Uh, right? Which the very next verses, right after Romans 9, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is uh, for them is that they may be saved. All right. Paul continues to pray for these Jewish people that some of which had rejected their Messiah to that point. Right. And his prayer is that they would be saved. And so even though some of them may have been hardened to their Messiah momentarily, uh, partially, 
he didn't give up hope on those individuals. He continued to pray. There were instances in Paul's life in which he does cease to pray for something, like whatever the thorn in the flesh may have been, right? Where God just says, hey, my grace is sufficient for you. But this is something that he continues to pray for them. Uh, This is his heart's desire. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, right? And so this is this is the issue. We know that we can't be righteous on our own merit. It's not a righteousness by works. And, the, and notice this, they did not submit to God's righteousness, right? That there's this issue of humility, this issue of surrender when we place our faith in Jesus, when we receive him as our savior, when we acknowledge that we are sinners, that we are guilty, and we need his forgiveness. We cry out to him for help. There's this submission to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so, even though uh, some people might read uh, Romans chapter 9 and view it as kind of like a, a narrowing of God's uh, chosen people, the, the elect, uh, and, and in their mind they're thinking of those who will be saved, uh, the invitation is broad, right? The call is to many <laughs> that, that they are, it is, it, it is to everyone who believes that they can experience the righteousness and they no longer are under the law. Uh, and just as far as God's perspective, in case you're like, okay, well, this is what Paul says, but what is, what is God thinking in Romans chapter 11? Here we go. There we go. Uh, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means, right? For I myself am an Israelite, it's a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Okay, and so God hasn't given up on them. Paul hasn't given up on them, uh, right? Paul loves them. God loves them. They are his chosen and elect people, okay? And so uh, the Messiah that God sent, even though they are, some of which are momentarily hardened, it is not a permanent thing. And Paul continues to pray for them. Okay, and so uh, what is significant that Paul outlines about the, the nation of Israel? Well, he says that these Israelites, they, they do have some significance uh, differences from the rest of the nations of the world right? The Gentiles. They, they have some uh, advantage, so to speak, okay? In which Paul points out uh, that they, to them belong, okay? This is things that God had gifted and granted to them as a people group. Uh, the adoption, okay? In Exodus 4.22, uh, God says, and thou shalt say to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn, that, that God views those people as his own people when he had dispersed the nations of the world. Uh, he chose Israel for himself. Uh, to them belonged the glory, all right, which is reminding us of the presence of God leading them through the wilderness, uh, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, or God's very presence living in uh, the temple, dwelling in the temple amongst those people, 
uh, right in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple, uh, that they were the people that had God's glory near them. To them belonged the covenants, where we would think of the covenants uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, later on to David, right? These are a people of, of heritage that God had given special attention, uh, afforded special favor and blessing on their, on their family, on their lineage, uh, that he had designated these covenants, that they were supposed to be a people uh, through whom the nations of the world were blessed and through whom they would see and know who God is and the way to worship him. Uh, to them belong the giving of the law, right, through Moses. And uh, like, go read Psalms if you want to know how David looked upon God's law as just this wonderful gift to humanity. Uh, to them belonged the worship, which actually other translations say uh, the you know service, uh, talking about the the temple work that they would do, uh, the the work of the Levites and the priesthood with the sacrifices and the offerings and and the work within the temple, right? That that's something that God had designated specifically to the nation of Israel and within them, right? The Levitical priesthood, and to them belong the promises. Okay, and, and uh, right, the promised land, right, the promise of his blessing on them if they would follow and obey him, uh, but also the promises of this coming Messiah, which he does end up getting to. Uh, to them belong the patriarchs, right, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, and, and all that, that we've been studying and reading about, that they have uh, this relation, this heritage of faith, these, these patriarchs that had trusted in God, that placed their faith in God, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, all right? The Messiah himself is born to this people group, okay? And so when Paul, Paul is not exaggerating in any way when God has affection and care for these people, that he has purposed them for many wonderful things. Uh, and the greatest blessing that God has given them and through them to the nations is the Messiah, the Savior, the one who came to bear our sins so that we could be forgiven. And uh, just in case you are unsure about the deity of Christ, uh, he, he, it is uh, Jesus who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Okay, and so I just want to point out... Jesus is God, okay? <laughs> so there we go. But then this next question uh, happens, or, well, no, it isn't really a question, but it, it it seems as though Paul's answering a question. And and throughout his writing, especially in Romans, he's asking these kind of rhetorical questions, and then sometimes he responds to them, okay? And so it seems as though he's he's answering a question here. He's like, okay, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And you might be like, wait, what? Like, what, what happened? What's he talking about? Okay, that, that's kind of like a little bit weird that he's saying this. Like, what, what question is he asking? Is someone asking the question? Has God's word failed? Is that what they're asking? Like, what would lead them to that conclusion? What is causing them to be confused in that way? All right, and, and, uh, and so this is what we're going to consider. And I think, I think the, the person that Paul is hypothetically uh, debating in some way or inviting perhaps to salvation, uh, 
this is going to be significant in our interpretation for this whole chapter. Okay, th like what it, who is Paul engaging with? Right? Who is Paul trying to, to teach or to correct uh, or to call to repentance? Right? What, what is his audience? Uh, is it people who believe that, right, that maybe uh, there's a degree of human free will and choice in salvation that Paul is arguing with? I don't, I don't necessarily think so. Although many would read this chapter in, in that context. But here, as far as his, his response, let me flash back to Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Uh, because he, he ends up talking about some very similar things and then asks kind of a similar question. And, and so we might be able to model this and be like, okay, Paul didn't write down the question that he's responding to, but I think we can elucidate what it was. Uh, and so we ask this question, to what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay, and so this is another thing to add to that list that we'd already had in Romans 9, uh, that, that they were entrusted with God's very word. I guess he kind of referenced it when he talked about the law that was given to them. Uh, but then he asks this, this question is asked, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Okay, so he's, he asked, what if some were unfaithful? Then cues off this next piece, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And he says, by no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Okay, and so uh, there's he's kind of engaging with this hypothetical audience, a question asker. He's trying to anticipate objections to the things that he's saying so that he can kind of answer their questions in advance. And so this is the question that is asked here. What if some are unfaithful, though? Does that mean that that nullifies God's faithfulness? Does that nullify the promises of God? And that's very similar to the verse that we just we're reading here. It is not as though the word of God had failed, right? And so someone's asking a question suggesting that they are concluding maybe God's word has failed, right? And why would someone ask that question? What is leading them to that possible conclusion? Okay, similar to what we just read in Romans 3, we're missing the part of the what if some were unfaithful? Can we predict this logical argument that, that he's combating, it, I, I think that seems to be the case, okay? Uh, based on the rest of the text and what's earlier on, I think it seems he's answering a, a criticism that they had, uh, the Jewish people had, towards Christianity, where their question might have been something like this. If Jesus really was the Messiah, wouldn't Jewish people have received him as such. Why are there so few Jewish converts to Christianity? All right, like, like if he was really the Jewish Messiah, why weren't all of them trusting in him? Why weren't all of them saved by him? Okay, and, and Paul is engaging with this question, uh, right? Because he's already starting to allude to the fact, he's like, he has great sorrow regarding his brother's his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Israelites. 
And he's starting to allude to the fact that, like, listen, just because you were born an Israelite doesn't necessarily mean you've experienced or are fully in the blessings that God would desire you to have. And, and on that point, like, they're starting to now already uh, combat that and say, well, wait a minute, so, so if Christ is really the Messiah, right, if Christ is God himself, then God's word has failed because the Jewish people haven't been saved by that Messiah in vast numbers, right? That, that yes, some were converted. Paul himself says he is a Jew, right? And he's one who is trusted in Messiah, but they're, they're beginning to ask the question, if Jesus was really the Messiah, why hasn't the majority of Israel or all of Israel placed their trust in him? And throughout this chapter, Paul is going to answer this question in a variety of ways. All right, we read it for you earlier. So he makes the argument. Now in the first, and, he, and this is actually really interesting, he's engaging them with their own history and their own scriptures, right? What he had said in Romans 3 were the very oracles of God. So here are some of the claims that he ends up making. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he argues from their own text in, in giving individuals and characters that they would have been like agreeing with, like, oh, obviously, yes, those people are not belonging to Israel. And then Paul's kind of saying, so couldn't it be possible that if you reject the Messiah, maybe you're not part of the Israel that God wants you to be a part of, right? And, and he's not saying this uh, <laughs> in order to anger them or because he hates them. We know that he loves them. We know that he's praying for them and that he desires them to be saved. He'd be willing to give up his own salvation for them to know Jesus. So this isn't out of hostility or hatred or anti-Semitism or self-hatred in Paul's case, because he is also Jewish. No, it's out of his desire to, to lead them to this conclusion. Okay, so he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He also then will point out that God has shown mercy to some, and God has also used others for the sake of dishonor throughout their history. And, and with the examples he gives, they're going to agree. As a part of their national heritage, Right, they're going to be like, yes, God has definitely done that. Right, God has shown favor to some, and he has chosen to use others for dishonor. Okay? Uh, Paul will also make the point that God has worked with a remnant of Israel many times before when the majority of Israel had been unfaithful. Alright, that throughout their history, that that also happened to be the case. Uh, he'll make the point that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that comes by faith. And Paul makes this same argument in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4, where he's done the legwork saying that righteousness has only ever come by faith. And even Abraham, who they would hearken back to, was the father of faith, that he was commended as righteousness when he believed God, right? When he had faith in what God said as being true, and it wasn't on the basis of his circumcision, right? That, it, that God credited him as righteous before any of the works of the law had taken place in his life, all right? And so Paul makes the argument that Gentiles are 
coming into the relationship with God. They've been called by him, along with Jews, to be saved by faith, or right, through faith, maybe is the better way to say it. Uh, and that God has prophesied in their very scriptures, the law, the covenants, and the oracles of God, that some of his own people would stumble on this rock of offense. And he's saying he's not just like kind of hypothetically extrapolating based off of Old Testament principles, uh, like some of his other arguments have been. He says, no, 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 in our very scriptures, the prophets warned us that many of our own people would stumble and possibly even right, reject God's Messiah. The chief cornerstone has become this rock of offense. And he ends up concluding with this great news, but it is to those who believe that they will not be put to shame. All right, and so all of this is leaning towards not that God has forever chosen these people to be hardened and condemned, uh, that he's chosen them for wrath, but know that God is inviting them to believe in the Messiah. It's a, it's a broadening of the invitation to the gospel, not a narrowing of, well, look at every generation, God's selecting a subset of them, and then a subset of them, and then a subset of them, and like, oh boy, I sure hope I'm born to the right family, because that's the means that I think I might be saved. And no, Paul's making the argument, it has nothing to do with your ancestry. It has nothing to do with your works, or even your... Uh, desire to keep the law that's not going to suffice. It has to do with faith that we must believe. Now, now this text, right, it's a very uh, common text, uh, controversial text uh, that many in the church family, okay, many who have believed in Jesus have differing opinions on. And this text uh, is one that has been a significant uh, text for the basis of the Calvinist uh, set of doctrines, okay? Uh, and Calvinists, I love them, right? I listen to pastors who are Calvinists. I've been edified and grown and educated by many of their teachings. Um, and their interpretation, I would tend to disagree with, uh, but that doesn't mean they're not a part of the family of God. But their interpretation uh, of this passage is that it is expressing this idea of unconditional election, that God has destined some for his grace and others for reprobation, and that his choice of them is, right, it's unconditional, that it was uh, unrelated to any of their actions, uh, past, present, or future. Uh, it is unrelated to any in initiating of faith on their own behalf, right, uh, that it is uh, independent of anything to do with them, really. Uh, right, and that God chose them and then caused them to have faith apart from their own will. And similarly, God also chose others to, to not believe uh, from before they were born, right? And you can kind of see where some of the passages they're, they're playing with, right? The ones about Jacob and Esau and before they ever did any good or evil, Right, that, that God loved one and hated the other, right? And you can kind of see the tension at play there, for sure. Uh, so, so that's what they would end up interpreting, you know, from this text. They also end up pulling from it this idea of irresistible grace. That God's grace 
for those that he has chosen, the elect, uh, that because he chose them, there's nothing they can do to stop it, uh, that they will be saved, that they will come to have faith, um, and it's apart from any anything that they could stop or resist. Okay, and so so you can kind of see like that's that's the the interpretation that a Calvinist would have. Um, there are other interpretations, by the way, um, but the one that I tend to think that this is suggesting is that Paul is correcting this thinking about uh, a, a hardened Israelite who is rejecting Jesus upon a certain basis of logic, and he's saying, listen, I'm going to come at you with all of our history and all of our scriptures, not for the sake of being right, but for the sake of loving you and inviting you into a salvation by grace through faith, okay? Uh, and so, that's why he ends up asking these questions, right? It is not as though the word of God has failed, and right? And so, I'm hoping, I'm hoping to make it through like verse 14 today. So, let, let's see. Uh, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to to Israel, okay? And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so we've read the story of Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac, and God chose the son of the promise, Isaac, who was, right, born to Abraham and Sarah, not Abraham and Hagar, uh, to be the child of the promise, the one who would inherit the, the blessing, the covenant, um, and so as a result, you can kind of see like, oh, wait a minute, Paul's making an argument to a hardened Israelite where he's like, hey, you already know that not all who belong to Israel, you know, are descended from Israel belong to Israel, or not all that were offspring of Abraham were the children of promise, right? And, and he, he immediately goes to Isaac and Ishmael. And some of the tr nations that had descended from Ishmael and some of the other offspring of Abraham were sometimes at war with Israel. And so they're going to kind of naturally respond like, well, yeah, obviously God chose Isaac. And so they have this preference to believe that argument. And Paul's using it to say, isn't it possible that God is working with a selection of you that have come to trust in the Messiah? and that the others still have opportunity to respond. Okay, uh, and so right, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Uh, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. And so he's using this argument against that attitude to say just because you were born in the family doesn't mean you're a part of God's family. Right, you need to participate in some way. That that there were many generations, in fact, later on of the Israelites that were rebellious, and God chose to work with a remnant, a subset of them. Uh, and then he says uh, he brings up the issue about yet yeah, Isaac being born, and then also Rebecca, right, who married Isaac, and the children Jacob and Esau, right, and so. Uh, and what God had prophetically spoken to Rebecca, we've read that as well. Before she even knew she had twins in her belly, uh, she goes and prays, and, and God speaks to her about this prophetic future for her children. 
uh, that the older would serve the younger, right, is what, what God had ended up speaking. But what Paul is pointing out here is, is this, is that uh, they had not yet been born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Okay? And so, uh, Paul is once again making this argument. It wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with their keeping the law, which the Jewish people have been trying to do. But God is electing. God is choosing one of them. And I'm going to suggest it's not for random or arbitrary reasons. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that God is making that choice on the basis of the future faith that he saw in them. Uh, and, and it wasn't, uh, as Paul is indicating here, it wasn't because of works. Okay. So it, it wasn't because of works and that God was able to foresee the life that they lived. We, we studied that last week God, about God's foreknowledge, about what God knows. Um, and that God was able to say this about these kids before they were born. And actually there, it's also even possible. He's not just describing those two men, but also the nations that descended from them. And then obviously here's, here's the tough verse. As it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. Okay. So not all the children of Abraham are children of the promise. And so the question for, for us or the reader, <laughs> right? The person that Paul's writing is, are, are you one who is believing like Abraham believed? Or are you simply resting on the fact that you were born, right, to the right nation? Right? Is that something that you're doing? Are you actively trusting in the promises that God has? Have you, have you placed your faith in him? Are you seeking to obtain righteousness by faith in Jesus? Or are you trying to obtain righteousness on your own merit? Because Paul makes the point, it has nothing to do with your blood relations right? It had nothing to do with what family you're born in. Not all who descended from Abraham are children of Abraham. He made it very clear. And it's also not because of works that uh, he makes this point. And we've seen him make that point elsewhere in the scriptures, that, that Paul, to so many of the churches that he's writing to, he's reminding them that salvation is by grace. It is a gift. And it's through faith that is received by faith. Okay? It has nothing to do with works, right? Abraham was commended as righteous because of faith. So, all right. But what about this, this issue of uh, about their, their not having been born yet? I'm going to argue that that is, once again, regarding the fact that it isn't to do with works. All right? But I would argue that it has to do with God's foreknowledge, okay? Uh, they're not having been born doesn't necessarily indicate that God chose them without considering their future lives, all right? And that's what some would interpret this as, like, right, God, before a baby is even conceived or born, chooses some to love and some to hate, and there's nothing that that you can do about it, right? And 
like that's kind of like a off-putting. It's not necessarily false because we don't like it, okay? And so we've got to be careful of that, of like, well, I don't like the idea of God doing that, so I'm not going to believe in that kind of God. That's, that's not how reality works, right? Like, I can't shape reality based on the things I like or dislike. But if we approach the scriptures, you know, and, and the, the totality of scriptures, I think we can make an argument about what is or isn't being said here. Okay, and, and it would be a few leaps of logic to say, that, okay, is it even saying that that's what God did with Jacob and Esau? That he just randomly picked, a, flipped a coin and picked one baby to love, one baby to hate. Uh, is that what, what he did for them? And then it's a huge leap of logic to say, therefore, that's also what he does with all of humanity. Okay, that, that, that it doesn't seem to indicate that. I want to point out that I believe that when God said this about them, he was considering their, their future lives. God knows the end from the beginning, right? God knows what is going to occur, uh, and God knows, as we read about David last week, God, he said in Psalm 139, your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book they were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them, right? God knew every day of David's life before he was even formed. And God has that knowledge about David and his ways, uh, right? David's path and all of these details about David. God knew before David was born. And I think God in his wise counsel could take into consideration those things when he's choosing, when he's electing a person for his service. Which actually, that's another thing to consider in this whole passage, is yes, it does have implications on salvation, but not all of it is necessarily talking about salvation. Uh, that it's, that, uh, I guess like one, one, of the, one of the ways that's helpful to think about this is just as when uh, the people of the Old Testament were awaiting the coming Messiah, uh, that some of them made an error in interpretation, believing that the coming Messiah was going to be a warrior king like David uh, that would liberate them from oppressors and establish his kingdom on the earth. And then Jesus shows up and he doesn't do that. But Jesus was the Messiah. He was the suffering servant Messiah. And so, he wasn't what they were expecting. They, they thought Messiah means this, and they were partly wrong, right? And even his disciples, they're like, so Jesus, like, when, when are you going to establish your kingdom? Is, is now the time? Right? And he's like, it's not for you to know the day or the day. Like, it's not for you to know. Don't worry about it. But, like, you're going to go out and be my witnesses. Um, and, and we, as, right, New Testament believers sometimes disconnected from, in my case, right, I'm a Gentile who's trusted in Jesus, disconnected from that Jewish heritage. Uh, when we read stuff in the scriptures, we always think it's about eternal salvation, and that's not always the case either. Okay, like we make the error on the other end, where we assume everything has to do with uh, forgiveness and salvation, uh, but sometimes God's doing work also here on the earth unrelated to salvation. And so when we read about God's election, it's not necessarily election to salvation. 
okay? Uh, sometimes it's election for service, that he was choosing one family to be the family that he would bless and the family that would bear, right, <laughs> the promises, the covenants, the law, right, the promises, all of these things, and, and then be an example to the rest of the world, that he chose them for service. And election isn't always a positive thing. Okay, that, that we might even choose uh, later on, we have already read about Pharaoh, and God chose Pharaoh. But it wasn't unto salvation, right? God chose Pharaoh for a purpose. He raised him up that he would, that God would become glorified and known throughout the nations. All right, and so choosing doesn't necessarily mean that it's salvation, and this passage here doesn't necessarily mean that he was choosing unrelated to their futures. It's just speaking to the fact that God made these claims prior to their being born. But we already know that God knows the knowledge, and it seems reasonable that when he makes his choices, that he would be considering their future faith, right? Their future sin, right? Their future of whether or not they're, they're seeking him and participating in him. And so, what is God choosing here? Is he, is he electing for salvation? Right? Because that is how some would read the text. That the ones he chose, right? It's this narrow group that God is choosing to be saved. And you can pinpoint who they are. But that's not necessarily the case. And that's not to say that the door isn't narrow, the path isn't straight. Because Jesus does say that. Or is he choosing them for service, for the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarch, and according to the flesh, to be the ones through whom the Christ, the Messiah, would come. And so, uh, that's one thing to consider here. I think that God is choosing them on the basis of his future knowledge of them, and it might be about salvation and it might not be. Uh, but later on in the passage, it definitely leads to issues of salvation. So, uh, and one of the things it said here is that it's because of him who calls. It's not because of works, but because of him who calls. And this is where in God's authority and God's sovereignty, none of us can thwart his plans uh, none of us can override his purposes, uh, that even when Joseph's brothers meant something for evil, God was able to use it for good. Even when Judas and the high priests uh, and lawless men planned and full, you know, completed the, the murder of Jesus through crucifixion, it wasn't as though that surprised God because it was definitely foreknown to him right? This was predestined, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, uh, that, that his purposes could not be thwarted, okay? Uh, and so, it is because of him who calls. And when it gets to issues of salvation later on, I want to point out that God could choose to arrange salvation however he wanted. And that is not to say that God eeny, meeny, miny, mode, who he would get right into his kingdom, but that God chose to arrange salvation in such a way that it is on the basis of faith. 
It is a gift of God, not of works, right? It is by grace through faith that we place our trust in him. And the logic of this passage and where it goes in chapter 10, it's all about Paul trying to persuade them to believe. And when he talks about the hardened Israelites, even in chapter 11, he talks about the the reason that some of them were cut off momentarily was because of their unbelief, all right, that it has to do with their belief. And so in this case, what God calls us to, I would argue, is to follow him, or he calls us to receive him, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, right? He calls us to believe in him, all right? And, and so this word calls, sometimes we end up associating with it like this super significant, uh, like a Calvinist would interpret this word calls to be uh, this effectual cause that you could not deny, right? That God chose and calls and like drags you is, uh, is actually one of the ways that they interpret uh, the way this word is used, um, that it's this forceful uh, way that you are called into his kingdom. But what I want to point out is that we've actually already seen this word calls show up earlier in the passage, uh, right here. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That this word calls literally can just be like, that's what so-and-so is called, right? Or like, we called him Peter, you know? Uh, like it literally can be used in that way. Uh, and, and the call is also just a type of invitation that he gives us. Now, when God calls, he's also doing it with foreknowledge. And so it's kind of definitive that it does end up happening. But nonetheless, God calls. Okay. It's up to him who calls how he arranges salvation and who will end up receiving him. And so what I want to point out is a passage that uses the same word, but maybe like lightens the context a little bit for us is Matthew chapter four. And, and here we go. Matthew four. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting it into the sea for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left and they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Okay, that, that called is literally, it can just mean like call, calling over or an invitation or right saying, hey, follow me. And that wasn't that Jesus went and hauled them out of the boat or like used the net to capture them and drag them away. No, it was an invitation that God called them to follow him. And we also know that Jesus invites other people to follow him that don't, right? The rich young ruler would be a classic example of someone that Jesus invites, but they don't necessarily follow through. And, and not only does God call on us, but God also wants us to call on him. All right. In Romans chapter 10, let's see if I search the word call here. Paul makes some of the, the same arguments. This is where he's going. Okay. It's not about being a part of the nation of Israel, a descendant of Abraham by blood. It's about whether or not you believe and follow Jesus. 
And so here he says this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Paul is desiring that even the, the hardened Israelite that he's, he's trying to invite into God's kingdom to, to receive the Messiah that was sent for them, right? He's like, call on the name of the Lord, right? Speak, say the name of Jesus. Ask him to rescue you, right? Or, or actually, as far as like calling him Lord, right? If you confess with your mouth, right? You kind of describe that as calling, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? This is literally right after the Romans chapter 9 that some people interpret as, as meaning like, you, you don't have any choice in this, right? You're stuck with where you're at. God chose you or didn't choose you from before you were born, and we don't know why. No, God <laughs> makes no distinction, and the invitation is broad. Right, the good news about Romans chapter 9 is that you don't have to be born to the right family. That it's not on the basis of works, but it's on the basis of trusting in the God who is gracious in the way that he arranged salvation, that all who call on him will be saved. And he knew the way you would respond, and he calls you, he invites you, he elected you. He chose you from before you were born, from before the foundations of the world. He looked at your life and invited you to salvation. And your choice matters, right? Your choice matters, right? The end of Romans chapter 9, this is what he ends up saying. He called who? Uh, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, right? He's calling all of us. And how do we respond? We respond uh, seeking by faith, a righteousness that is by faith. So it's not of works. It's not of the, the nationality that we happen to have. And it's based on whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so... I didn't quite make it as far as I wanted to today, but we ended it at a spot that's sufficient and will continue next week. All right, but this is, this is still urgent for you, that if you haven't trusted in Jesus, do so now, right? Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Place your trust in the Messiah that didn't merely come for the nation of Israel, but was the promise of Abraham in which God was saying he would bless all the nations, all the families of the earth through Abraham's family. And the way he does that is through Jesus, who is God, who came to bear our sins, right? Who offers this gracious and merciful gift and who invites us to follow him. And it's not on the basis of works. It's not on anything that we could have done or twisted his arm to force him to save us on any other basis or merit, but it's on the basis of his, his mercy towards us, his compassion towards us, and he invites you to that. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, as we study through this text. 
uh, that God, we are going to find you glorious and wonderful, purposeful in all of your ways. Uh, that Lord, that you are like Paul desiring for people to be saved, that you actually did let your life be cut off and be accursed as you hung on the cross in order for salvation to be offered to the many. I thank you, Lord, that you foresaw those who would receive you, those who would follow you, those who would place their hope and trust in you, and you chose them, God. There's no doubt about that. You called them, and you you invite them into your family, that that they are children of promise, children of God. And Lord, it's on the basis of those who believe, those who receive you as their Savior, as their Lord. And so I ask God, as your word goes forth, even as we study a a humbling and a challenging text, that we would recognize your mercy and your grace that you had for us that we did not deserve. And we'd worship you for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I love you guys. We'll continue next week. Take care.